This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio. It's Friday, January 12th, and today we've got a great show. We've got Tony Havocs of PH2 in Indianapolis, Indiana. We're going to talk about occupational exposure limits and the relation to limits for the general public. Interesting topic. And uh, before we do that, let's uh, stop and thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio. And, uh, you know, want to check out our YouTube page. We've been putting these uh, shows up on YouTube, and you can subscribe to our page. We'd also like you to check in with us on Facebook. And uh, we have continuing education credits available for the show. So keep in touch and let us know how we can help you out. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everybody. Congratulations go out to Vic Cafaro, Richmond, Virginia, for digging out the answer to last week's trivia question that wildfires are actually named by the first responders. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, January 12, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. What agency established nickel, N-C-E-L, exposure limit? Back to you, Joe. Okay, so today's guest is Tony Havocs. Tony's a PE and a certified industrial hygienist. He was an honors graduate from the Georgia Institute of Technology. He's bachelor's degree is in mechanical engineering. And as I said, he's a registered professional environmental engineer with over 25 years of experience. He does a lot of field work, a lot of large projects, and also participates a lot in industry associations and presents at industry uh, trade shows and industry conferences. And we look forward to talking a little bit about a presentation he's going to be doing at the IAQA conference in Chicago. That's the 21st through the 20, uh, 22nd through the 24th of this month. And uh, he's going to be talking about occupational exposure limits and their relationship to limits for the general public. And Tony's joining us in studio with the Z-Man today, so happy to have him. He's a former Pittsburgher, and he's visiting the Pittsburgh region, so it's great to have Tony in, uh, on the, on the, in the studio, actually. Um, Tony, let's, let's start by saying hello and welcome, and thanks for joining us. Good to hear you, Joe. Good to be in Pittsburgh again. I'll bet. I'll bet. Good old Pittsburgh. Now, Tony, what, 
let's start with just some some basic things. What are exposure limits? You know, um, who's the exposed population we're typically dealing with? Well, you start off with an exposure limit, and if you ask yourself what is an exposure limit, really you're talking about combining an exposed population with an exposure scenario, and you're focusing on a particular critical adverse effect that you want to prevent. And uh, as you pointed out, you know there is an exposed population, and that could that could vary. That could be a healthy worker in a in a, in a workplace, but for the general public, that includes uh, the elderly and very young. That might include, in some cases, outside of that, might include emergency personnel. So you have uh, you have a variety of things that we have to look at in terms of what the exposure limit actually covers. And let's let's talk a little bit about exposure scenario scenario. You you uh, kind of break it down. I see between a time period, a frequency, and then you've got a little summary. Maybe you could expand on that a little for listeners. Yeah, so when you look at exposure scenarios, you've got uh, limits that are based on uh, acute uh, effects or things that occur very quickly, uh, short time periods, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. Uh, you may have a little bit longer period than ones we're typically aware of, which would be like an eight-hour workday uh, or even a 24-hour period for uh, general public. And then you may have something of moderate length that you're looking at in terms of one month to three years of, of exposure. Um, and that may occur on a frequency basis of uh, once a day, several times a day, may occur, uh, if you're looking at a yearly basis, you may be looking at, say, 250 work days per year, uh, as opposed to somebody who's living you know, in, a, in a residence, you may not think of that as 250 days a year. You may think of that as somewhere around 350 days a year, essentially a two-week vacation if you may be away from the, from the home, but then the rest of the time you're actually living in your residence. And then also in terms of frequency, Think about how long is that over a lifetime? Are we talking 30 years? Are we talking a typical 40, 45-year work period? Um, yeah, what, what do you look at in terms of the length of that? So, you know, you've got some degree of, of exposure, which would be your concentration. You've got a location situation. And then you have some pattern, that, that frequency and time period of pattern of exposure that you're looking to uh, limit to a point where you don't expect to see uh, disease or uh, or some type of bad outcome, whether that's cancer, whether that's death, whether that's just nuisance effects. Uh, and then you have a particular route of exposure. And usually we're talking mostly about airborne exposure, although there are some, some dermal exposure limits, uh, and of course there are oral limits that we have for drinking water and, and, and other media that we, we get into like food. And why, I guess... With, with respect to the exposure scenario, it, I guess it does vary tremendously, and, and I, I wonder how the people who are putting together these occupational limits, at least, you know, what, how, do they, how do they take that into consideration? Are they uh, looking at a worst-case scenario? Are they uh, averaging things? How does, that, how does that work? Well, part of that depends upon um, what, what population you're protecting, and part of that depends upon what you what's the what's the final number usually you take a look at a bunch of scenarios and you take the most conservative of those and that's what becomes the actual exposure acceptable exposure value so you've got to look at things in terms of how does the exposure scenario fit into that so for instance if you're looking at uh, a daily work week of you know five days and you've got recovery period of say 16 hours a day you realize that for 
certain chemicals, you'll have that recovery period. Now, if you're going to the opposite extreme of, like, you're in a spacecraft and you've got 24-hour exposure for several months, then you realize you have no recovery period. So you look at that exposure scenario uh, from a practical standpoint within the side of how you're creating the, the limit itself. Then that, that, that brings up the idea of, you know, what's the critical effect and how does that play a part in and the generation of, of what you want as a number and how you want to protect. Because you, essentially you have to break things into uh, either a risk or, or a threshold type approach. So we usually think of you know, chemicals as either having some threshold below which you don't have to worry about and above which you need to, certain, you have, need to start becoming concerned about. And then you have ones, you have ones that are in the, the cancer realm, which statistically speaking, yeah, every little molecule brings some level of risk with it. How much depends upon uh, what you have in the way of the chemical, the potency, how it's delivered, and the like. So all that goes into uh, when somebody's looking at deriving a number, you know, the selection process. And you do take those critical effects and say, you know, cancer's death. That's, that's a pretty big effect. Oh, but yeah. if I'm looking at it, yeah, that's nuisance. It's, re it's reversible. It's, it's not going to it's not going to end things, but it, it may be something that, that causes disturbances for a short period of time. So maybe I'm not going to be as concerned about the odor as I am concerned about the cancer effects, and that shows up in the in, in how how low the numbers are depending upon the critical adverse effect that you're looking to pre prevent. And are, is it only cancer that I mean? Obviously, we're looking at other critical adverse effects, um, and and it could just be maybe like irritation or odor, etc. How do they um, how do they determine what they're going to you know which of those adverse effects they're looking at? Or they try and look at all of them, I assume, but the, the money only goes so far. How do you prioritize? Yeah, so cancer gets looked at probably the most heavily, uh, mainly because of uh, population fear, but also just because it tends to drive the numbers the lowest. So you always want to look at cancer as a as a significant effect, and then you look at your target organ parts, your kidney, your liver, your lungs, your heart, your blood, and then you start looking at the nuisance or transient ones if you can't see anything else with regard to that. You don't always have enough data. We've had, uh, we've had long discussions about what's the minimum amount of data you need to be able to set a limit. And part of that depends upon how much safety factor or uncertainty factor you actually want to put in the number. Um, and that actually gets to the point of, you know, occupational numbers versus uh, general public numbers. You're typically looking at safety uncertainty factors of say three to three hundred, more typically around ten to thirty for the occupational realm, versus somewhere in the neighborhood of like thirty to three thousand for the general population. And and that shift is where you see the final differences in between some of those numbers. But you do even with inside of the cancer, you look and see whether it's a genotoxic or a non-genotoxic chemical. And what do I mean by that? Well, genotoxic means you're going to see a direct effect upon the genetic structure by that chemical as opposed to, say, an indirect effect. And that makes a difference in, in how you look at the model that you're using to decide what's acceptable. In a non-genotoxic uh, cancer event, you may actually have a threshold. And if you stay below that threshold, you don't actually significantly increase your risk of getting cancer from uh, exposure to that chemical versus one which is genotoxic where there, there's essentially you expect even a single molecule to have some risk associated even if it's extremely minute. Um, 
and that can range in potency. But in general, those tend to drive the numbers down very, very low. Uh, the lowest one I can tell you would be you know, lowest feasible limit, which would be strength. And you're, you're talking where only a few molecules actually um, are necessary to cause uh, genetic defects. And so you, you do look at, at uh, that as a, uh, as, a, as a big contributing factor to how, how the number ends up. What was that again? I hey, didn't... Chuck, you know, one of the things about furan is furan, okay. you know, it's very commonly found with incomplete combustion. And I don't think that the industry was really aware of it before. And it just seemed to me that you know, doing some consulting work that I was doing, that uh, that was one of the things that they looked for. Tony, after the World Trade Center. And, and, and buildings that were affected to it, they went in, they looked for furan, they looked for dioxin, and uh, you know, besides lead and asbestos and, and some of the other things. And in terms of potency, you look at the tetrachlorodibenzodioxins, uh, TCDDs, TCDFs, the furans out of that, and those tend to be some of the most potent carcinogens you'll ever find. And so those which occur with combustion of things like PCBs and chlorinated materials are the ones that you really have to look at. They'll drive the numbers down incredibly low. Now, it's interesting. You know, there's, a big, uh, there's a big push towards using what's called control banding uh, to group chemicals, group risks, and then uh, if you don't have enough information to set a specific point value, you can put them in the grouping and then attribute the same type of control for group A, all the same type of group B, and there are varying levels of, uh, of potency associated with them. And the most controlled ones are the carcinogens. Uh, we, did a, we did a study for the WHEEL Committee, uh, Workplace Environmental Exposure Level Committee, uh, about 10 years ago. And we looked at 100 chemicals, and we compared that control banding approach of ranking them, essentially, into groups versus what the real numbers are. And I can tell you that carcinogens drive the numbers extremely low. Uh, they, drop, they drop them into the lowest grouping, and it occurs every time. And so that's one of the reasons why you do see uh, the carcinogens as being a big focus because they will drop the eventual con acceptable concentration to a very low value. So why, I guess, why bother looking at, you know, convulsions and death when you're going to, you know, your levels are going to be well below what would cause that. Although, I mean, we do look at that as well, right? Well, yeah, you, you've got to look at everything. I mean, I, I would be remiss as a professional to not look at some of the other effects and you look at them for a couple reasons. You don't just look at them because, you know, they, they may end up driving the number lower, but you also look at them for what do you use for warning signs? Um, because, you know, the genetic aspects of car carcinogens, typically you're looking at 10 to 50 years for development of disease, whereas some of these other things you may see development in a much earlier uh, time span. Now, in particular, you see um, color loss of, of eye vision uh, or color dyscrasia, from exposure to certain solvents well before you'd ever see any some of the other effects. So there's more sensitive ways, and if you put that information together and look at that, you realize you can catch that early on. So it's important to look at those, and sometimes the numbers for the um, for that will drive the uh, will drive the number down just as well. Uh, and and when you're looking at carcinogens, then you also have to look at the cost benefit of them. Yeah, what are the benefits we're getting? And benzene is probably the biggest one. You know, we've got benzene, uh, benzene toluene, benzene xylene, the BTEX, and our gasoline. And benzene plays a big role in all the things that we do get out of society. So all the benefits that we get are heavily tied to the petrochemical side, and that means being exposed to benzene. So if we accept a certain amount of risk, and that risk value changes depending upon the, the agency and the grouping and how you want to 
whether that's voluntary or involuntary, but there's a certain amount that we will accept because of the benefits that come out of that. And, and benzene is probably a good example of, of how we will accept a higher level of risk. Do the same thing for pharmaceuticals. Um, so you have you have the same issue there, and that probably is one of the uh, one of the big differences between um, you know, occupational exposure and non-occupational exposure in the limits. For occupational exposure, back in 1980, the Supreme Court uh, looked at uh, the benzene ruling, and uh, one of the chief justices, uh, one of the justices, uh, made the uh, in, in his decision said, you know, an unreasonable person would not consider one in ten thousand to be um, too much risk. And so one in 10,000 on the occupational side is probably uh, an upper number, and one in 1,000 is probably the lower number in, in acceptable cancer cases, and that's what OSHA is driven towards in terms of uh, their numbers of acceptable risk for carcinogens. On the other hand, if you go to EPA in the Clean Air Act uh, amendment from 1990, you'll see that there's actually written in there if, it's, if the risk is lower than one in a million, they're not going to look at it. So they go all the way down to one in a million as opposed to one in 10,000. And typically, the EPA looks at one in 100,000 to one in a million. You go to the uh, state of California under the Prop 65, and for a consumer product, if you're looking at uh, one in 100,000 is acceptable risk. So if it has less than one in 100,000 acceptable risk, um, then what happens is you, you, can, you end up regulating that type of a product for, for consumer usage. And that, that, that plays out in uh, various scenarios in terms of how we, how we manage both on a, um, on a workplace side versus a you know, non-workplace side, the development of some of these numbers and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I've got a, a text I want to – I've got two questions, but first I want to I hit this text because it, it directly um... – you know, it's directly tied into what we're talking about here. It says, no numbers to apply for occupational asthma sensitizers and triggers. Can you comment on that? Yeah. Um, in general, there's very few limits for which a sensitizer, we have enough data on the sensitizers to settle them. But there are, there are a couple. So Bacillus subtilis, the subtle icings, uh, which are enzymes that were used in the detergent industry, particularly with uh, huge number of sensitizations back in the 1960s into the early 1970s, uh, malic anhydride, uh, isocyanates are all sensitizers. Now there's two ways to approach the management of, of those as risks. One is to drive a very low number so you prevent sensitization from occurring. Um, and then the second way is to make a notification to people that they are sensitizers and the number doesn't necessarily include the protection against sensitization because we don't have the ability to do that at this point. Now. So if you look at um, the, the HCGIH TLVs and the, um, the wheels, the workplace environmental exposure levels, as well as some of the foreign uh, MACs, German MACs and the like, you'll see they may have sensitizer notations. And those are to alert you that the chemical actually does cause sensitization in certain subpopulations at certain dosages, but the number doesn't necessarily prevent that. And the reason being is that we may not have enough information to know what that number is. Those numbers tend to be extremely low um, because you're trying to prevent that effect from occurring. Um, I should probably talk about what sensitization really is. There's, um, you get a response to a chemical at a relatively high dose, um, and then your body acts on an immune side, and the next time it sees that chemical, it reacts at a much lower dose. So you're shifting the dose response curve over and making the person much more sensitive to that chemical than they would have been prior to that. Now, in between 
getting, once, once you get sensitized, that's actually not a disease state. Uh, the disease state is actually when you react. And so you may not react, but because you're now more sensitive, you have to be handled much more carefully. And generally speaking, the way that's handled is once the person gets sensitized, they're taken out of the workplace. And obviously you can't do that if you're living uh, in, in a house. You, know, right. you can't be taken out of your house unless you want to be put into a bubble. So preventing that from a, from a non-occupational standpoint is different from a person gets occupationally sensitized and you can take them out of that workplace. Normally, that sensitization process takes months to years to actually occur. So it usually just doesn't happen overnight in terms of the sensitization aspect of it. And so in an occupational world, if somebody comes in and two days later they say they're sensitized, they're probably not. There's something else going on. Uh, but you do have to look at that in terms of it's not usually considered in the setting of the limit. And if it was, so if you're doing a control banding approach and trying to group it, you're going to group it like you would a carcinogen with a very low number because you know it's going to have to be low to prevent that from occurring because certain individuals will react regardless of, you know, re regardless of, of what the chemical is. So I'll give you a good example. Um, so my sister is allergic to chocolate, which is just horrible for, for probably a lot of people's standards. The reason she's allergic to chocolate is because of the cockroach material in the chocolate. Okay. All right? But she doesn't, she doesn't do chocolate. Now, should we ban chocolate? Okay. You know, no, you try and separate the person from the exposure, and you try and minimize what the opportunity is for the public uh, with when you do have sensitive subgroups to be exposed to that or way of warning them. So it's, it's, a, it's a different management technique on the risk as opposed to just leaving it up to a, a particular number. But wouldn't there be cockroach allergens and other things that she's exposed to? Yep, and she would then have problems with those as well. Interesting. Yeah. Tony, I, I yeah, guess... Thank you. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I, I, well, we're talking about sensitization and, and asthma sensitizers. There's a lot of, you know, obviously microbial contamination has that potential to be, a, a, I guess, a sensitizer for asthma. But it seems like it's going to be very difficult to set any kind of exposure limits for that, especially on the residential side. Any comment on that? Yeah, it, it is going to be difficult. They're, they're complex molecules, and there's mixes of them. It's not like we're being, you know, for the detergent industry, you have one particular molecule that you're looking at. So if you've got a Procter & Gamble that now has molecules that they look at, they are producing only that molecule, and it's typically a high, high molecular weight molecule because the low molecular weight ones normally do not cause sensitization. They have to be attached to something else, um, some adjuvant, to, to be able to create that same level of sensitization. So very few chemicals, uh, small chemicals, actually cause sensitization. Formaldehyde, when it attaches to something else, can. Fluoraldehyde can as well. Certain ones uh, can do that as well. Most of those do not. So you're looking at these high molecular weight uh, compounds, which are very complex. And so in an indoor air quality setting where you've got mold, uh, bacteria, you've got mites, uh, you've got uh, protozoa, you've got a whole underlying uh, group of organisms that create these high molecular weight uh, compounds, and they may be at, at the small concentrations reacting to those. And so you have to look at a different way to manage them other than just setting a particular exposure level. You might have to decide there's a, there's a level of cleanliness around uh, as opposed to the process of actually putting a specific number on it. Yeah, well, one other thing on the back, on the, uh, on the subtlest, um, I suspect that uh, that they're they're doing some genetic engineering 
with them because a lot of them are commonly used in in cleaning products today uh, for you know drain cleaning, stain removal, uh, a lot of the green uh, products actually are based upon uh, subtlest uh, you know in many situations uh, living actually. And that, that's actually uh, probably an important factor to consider. So if you're somebody who's doing cleaning, you're a, you're a maid's staff, you're a janitor, you're working with lots of chemicals, a lot of which actually are sensitizers or asthma, you know, they cause asthma. And so you do have to be, you should be more, more careful with, with those because you're working on a, on a daily basis. On the subtle life scenes in terms of the enzyme production, the fact that they work really well at breaking down some of the components you want, yeah, you look at the psilocetalis and the psilocetalis as a acceptable value. It's, it's 60 nanograms per cubic meter. Hmm. Now, if you want to put it into comparison, the occupational exposure limit for chromium is you know is somewhere around you know say five, you know, cadmium is like five micrograms per cubic meter, and lead is 50. So we're talking another you know couple orders of magnitude below that that you're looking at to to, to protect. Um, for these enzymatic compounds, um, because they are very reactionary, and it's and it's typically not, however, uh, like a lot of other compounds, where it's dose. How much dose do you have over a period of time? Now, concentration times time equals some constant dose, and a behavior's role, which is actually Flurry's role, but that's a different story. Uh, Haber got credit for it. But if you've got some constant value of complete dose that you're allowed, that doesn't work with a lot of these uh, sensitizers. They're peak related. It's the peak dose that actually creates the sensitization. And so you have to worry not about the, the average exposure over time, but you have to worry about the peak exposure. And there are certain compounds which that is very important for, where the peak is more important than, than the actual average over an extended period, which goes back to that exposure scenario again. It's part of that limit development. What are you trying to prevent? Hmm. Tony, I, I want to go back just for a moment to the types of occupational exposure limits. I think most listeners are familiar with PELs from OSHA and threshold limit values from ACGIH and and recommended exposure levels from NIOSH, but there's one you've mentioned a few times, and that's the workplace environmental exposure levels, the WHEELS from, uh, I guess those are an AIHA. Can you just expand on that a little bit, what those are and, and why they came into existence? Yeah, so back in about 1980, the American Industrial Hygiene Association uh, created out of, out of a particular committee, um, there was a need within the industry to create occupational exposure limits for smaller production chemicals and specialty chemicals that, that HCGIH was not willing to actually uh, produce numbers for. And so they formed a, a group uh, which became the Wheel Committee, and they started creating numbers for these low production volume chemicals and then they would take on other chemicals as requested. So actually EPA came to the wheel committee and said, can you do the chlorofluorinated uh, carbon replacements, the HCF, the 123, uh, those types of chemicals. And so then they took on those, and then they spread out from there. That was originally housed under the American Industrial Hygiene Association. A few years ago, it moved out of AIJ into toxicology excellence and risk assessment as a uh, uh, as a kind of a grouping and, a, and an impetus out of there. And it's now technically actually, Terra is now under University of Cincinnati, so it's actually housed under now under the University of Cincinnati. So you've got 25 to 30 board-accredited toxicologists, CIHs, um, engineers, who get together and do a consensus basis, very much like the ACGIH TLV committee does, to create those limits for the workplace. 
Um, I've had the opportunity. I was the chair of that group, and I was on that. I was a member of that group for 20 some years, and still an advisor for that group. And we actually set up joint meetings between the ACGIH and us to talk about how do we develop, how do we improve that, how do we not step on each other's toes so that we maximize resources. So that kind of gives you a background. Hmm. Tony, I want to go back to the OSHA PELs for just a moment. Oh, and yeah, we're getting close to halftime here, but I, I think you might be able to do this in a minute and a half we've got left. OSHA PELs came out, I want to say back in the, the 70s, maybe the early 80s, and, and since then... There haven't been too many revisions. I wonder if you could just comment on, on why that is and um, what kind of these other organizations have done and if that has helped the situation at all. Yeah, so if you look at an OSHA PEL, which is a legally binding limit that you have to um, maintain to protect your employees, they were originally created out of the Occupational Safety and Health Act back in 1970. The uh, first major one was asbestos, but they really have only developed about 30 or some since then. What they did is they wholesale adopted ACGI's TLVs from basically 1969. They adopted those as the limits. They tried in 1989 to do a wholesale upgrade of 289 or so limits, something somewhere around that number. Um, the UAW and the AFL-CIO sued OSHA, saying they didn't make them protective enough. It went to the courts. The courts said you can't do... Uh, wholesale, you got to do each one by itself, essentially. Mm. And so they, they threw out all the changes that they intended to make, and I went back to a step-by-step process, which has now limited very dramatically what how OSHA can and what it can do in the way of up, of updating those limits. So now you go to ACGIH and the uh, and the wheel committee, so the TLBs and the wheels, in terms of they are updated on a regular basis, uh, every, say, five to ten years. And so they are much more modern. Uh, they have a very... Uh, straightforward process on how that's done. Uh, you can look at some publications in, in the professional journals, or you can actually take a PDC, professional development course, on how that's done. Uh, the Wheel Committee actually does sponsor one of those. And you can see how they actually form those. And those have taken over as the standard, industry standard, on how, what is a good number, as opposed to OSHA PELs, which are a legally required number, but they're not necessarily good practice. And just to further that a little bit, are, I, even though they're legally required, the PELs, and obviously if there was a lawsuit, you'd have a problem on your hands. Are the ACGIH TLVs um, as, I guess, weighted as much in legal cases as the PELs from OSHA? Um, they have been weighted pretty heavily as uh, because of the way they're created, the standard de facto of, of how they're done. As, a, uh, as an appropriate limit to have to meet in order to be protective of the workers, provided you actually go back into looking at that occupational scenario, uh, the time period and the like. So if you're trying to say that, oh, I, I, hit, I was over the limit one day out of 15 years, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Okay. Um, they also weren't really meant to be a, um, a point of contention over uh, disease or not disease. Now, the data is typically there to decide and look at the risk aspects of whether there was disease. But remember, they have uncertainty and safety factors built in and uh, versus OSHA, which also has economics and technical feasibility built into their limits. And so there are some differences in there that may account for that. But ACGIH TLVs are looked at more heavily in the litigation realm um, because they have been updated and they have taken into consideration uh, newer data, better data. And so I, you, you look at them as a higher level, same thing with the wheels, that they're a much better 
uh, number than the original PELs. Okay. Well, we'll be back. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors here at halftime, and then we'll be back with the second half of our interview. We've got Tony Havocs today, and we're talking about occupational exposure limits and their relationship to limits for the general public. We kind of did the background stuff here for the first half. We'll get a little more detail in the second half. We'll be right back. Hang with us for 90 seconds. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. And, Tony, I want to I hit a couple of these um, definitions before we go too far because I, I have a feeling you'll be mentioning some of these acronyms and definitions over the second half of the show. I want to make sure we've got a good background for listeners. I think everybody's familiar with what a permissible exposure limit is, a threshold limit value. we got the wheel. we got the recommended exposure limits. Um, let's go over first what is a minimum risk level. It's an ATSDR uh, term, I guess. Yeah, so the uh, Agency for Toxic Substance Disease Registry, which is under the CDC, has uh, taken a whole series of chemicals which came out of the Superfund program, and they've an- they analyzed them, evaluate them, and they do toxicological profiles on them. And then as part of that, they create what they call a minimum risk level. Um, and what they do is they estimate the daily human exposure to particular substances likely over a lifetime or, or a short time period, depending upon which grouping it's in, uh, to prevent uh, adverse non-cancer effects. So these are all non-cancer effects. And it could be acute in terms of like 1 to 14 days. It could be an intermediate value, which is, say, 14 to, to a year, or it could be chronic, which would be more than one year. So they're intended to cover the whole general population, not just workers. And they're intended, they were intended really to be used as... Um, screening levels on Superfund cleanup sites for the EPA. Okay. And these are these are chemical hazards, not no biological or uh, other types of hazards. This is all primarily, we're talking chemicals right now. At this point, uh, as far as I know, ATFDR has not put together anything on a, uh, on a non-chemical basis. Okay. And then a slope factor, if you could quickly let people know what that is. All right. So if I have, um, if I'm doing a... a Dose response to a chemical. We're giving uh, animals a certain amount of chemical dose, and we're looking at what they respond in terms of cancer because slope factors associated with cancer. And I find some level at which I see uh, a minimal amount of effect that I find statistically significant, and then I assume that I, I have a, some confidence level on that, and then I take that straight down to zero, and which means that I now expect that. I anticipate that anything over 
zero molecules, which means a single molecule is going to give you some level of risk. And then up to that point where, I, where I've measured some level of risk is a straight line. And so I get some slope for that straight line of response. Well, that slope, that, that increase in risk per unit of dose, so I've got an increase of however much risk per milligram per cubic meter or per mil, uh, um, or per milligram per, per kilogram of body weight it may be in, if you actually look at the slope of that line. So then I can project out, well, if I have this much dose, I have this much risk. If I have this much dose, I now have this much risk. Okay. So it's a, it's a basically a line projection of, of the risk compared to the dose. Okay. And then you, I think you, you may have mentioned this risk-based target level, but let's let's go back over that real quick. Yeah, so I talked about uh, OSHA having, and in, in the occupational world, you have an acceptable risk value of 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 10,000 for a target risk for occupational exposure uh, in terms of uh, cancer cases over a lifetime. EPA, 1 in 100,000 to 1 in a million is the typical target value, and that's the same for most states. So back in the mid-90s, early, earlier mid-90s, I looked at about 40-some um, states, and we got a hold of their, their acceptable risk for cleanup on uh, contaminated uh, petroleum sites and chemical sites. And they pretty much all ranged around 1 in 100,000 to 1 in a million is the acceptable risk for the general population. Hmm. Uh, you tend to have a little bit higher risk for industrial sites and then a little bit lower risk for the uh, residential sites. And so that's, that's a pretty typical range, and if you look at the uh, federal regulations and decisions, they, they tend to fall into those ranges as well. All right. Then we've got just two, two here, RFD and RFC. Um, quick, if we could just kind of give people an idea of what those are. So RFD is a short abbreviation for reference dose, and an RFC is a short abbreviation for reference concentration. So for reference dose, it's a daily oral exposure that a human population can have without appreciable risk of getting some, some bad effect over a lifetime. That could be a kidney effect, that could be a lung effect, non-cancer effects. Basically, group all your non-cancer effects. Mm -hmm. For reference concentration, it's pretty much the same thing. Instead of being a oral dose, it's an inhalation dose, below which you don't see and you don't expect over a lifetime to have any adverse effects to Okay. And um, it's under, it's, you've got to understand that those are created by taking uh, known effect levels out of various studies. And so if I, have a, I have a chemical A, and I've got 200 studies, and I look at each of the different organs that I might want to look at. Maybe I'm looking at neurological effects. Maybe I'm looking at birth effects, reproductive effects. Maybe I'm looking at the kidney. Maybe I'm looking at the heart. I'm looking at the blood. I take each of those and I find the ones that have the lowest dose value, and that maybe it's a that's a a low effect level, low adverse effect level, or a low AL, or it could be a no adverse effect level, a no AL. I take that lowest point of each of those studies and work my way using various factors to account for additional time. Maybe the study was a short study and I need to project it out to a lifetime. Uh, or maybe it was uh, limited in terms of it was on a particular mouse, and we don't think that mouse is as good a predictor of human as, as, as other species might be, so there's some interspecies difference. You account for all that, and you take these safety uncertainty factors, and you, you basically reduce that 
NOAL or LOAL, the low observed adverse effect, and over that no observed adverse effect level, and you divide that by those safety uncertainty factors, and you end up with a reference dose if it's an oral, or a reference concentration if it's a concentration. So each of those, when those are created, have some level of safety and uncertainty built into them. Um, and um, typically, reference dose or reference concentrations based on the general population. So if we look at the general population, unlike the workplace population, you know, I'm in a workplace, I'm being probably being exposed to 40 hours a week. Um, in my house, I'm probably being exposed, if I'm, if I'm an elderly person, 168 hours a week. So you may do an adjustment, a time adjustment factor to adjust for, you know, a fourfold increase in exposure time for the 168 hours versus the 48 hours. You may also look at other factors in terms of more susceptibility for a uh, for that population that would go into that whole calculation basis. But they're all the reference those reference concentrations are based off of the general population and tend to be lower than you might see in, a, in an occupational realm just because of that, because they account for longer exposure periods, um, uh, you know, a lifetime of exposure, differing factors that that uh, drive that number lower. And what about a hazard quotient? That, that's basically, I think, what you were... Well, go ahead. Just let's make sure we've touched on that. Yeah, so yeah, if you're looking at a hazard quotient, that's the ratio of exposure that you have compared to that RFD or RFC. So okay. if I've got this conservative value of a reference concentration, of, let's say it's, let's say it's uh, 10 ppm of chemical X, and I'm actually being exposed to 1 ppm of chemical X. My hazard ratio is 1, my hazard quotient is, is 1 divided by 10, which means it's 0.1, which I'm, I'm at 10% of my allowable given all the conservative and safety factors that have already been put into that number to begin with. Okay. So when you typically see some of these comparisons to acceptable values coming off of uh, cleanup sites or even in vapor intrusion and indoor air, indoor air situations, these numbers already have a safety factor and uncertainty factors built into them, and then you're looking at the hazard quotient compared to that value. So maybe it's 50%, and sometimes it hits 150%, and people panic. But recognize that that is particularly only maybe one day when that quotient, I mean, that value is based off of a lifetime. You know, one out of uh, thousands of days as opposed to you know, hundreds out of thousands of days is, is not the same. And so you've got to look at where that number came from and what that actually means in terms of the actual exposure compared to the predictable. So you do it in terms of, again, the, the exposure scenario, the time period and the frequency, and you match that. That's why there's different RFDs and RFCs. There's acute, there's intermediate, and there's chronic. And you compare the, those. And you compare that exposure uh, scenario. How many times do I get exposed? You know, one out of 365 days uh, over a particular RFC is probably not a big deal. Um, unless, of course, it's a nuisance one, in which case it's going to be aggravating. So maybe you're over the irritation value and you're irritated that one day. And so you do also look at the endpoint as to what that is as well. Hmm. Let me let me hit real quick. Um, ambient air quality limit. I, I want to make sure we touch on this one. Yeah, so we have uh, primary standards in the public health realm, you know, derived by EPA, which are intended to protect uh, human health and the environment, the sensitive populations such as asthmatics, children, and the elderly over a lifetime. And so an ambient air quality limit is meant to be uh, general public, including you know, babies as well as people over the age of 65, uh, 
that typically would be outside of the workplace. We're also trying to protect people who already may be asthmatic and may be more sensitive to uh, particulate or some particular agent. And those are those are those are what are derived are called ambient limits. Uh, there's primary ones that the Fed derives. There's actually secondary standards that, that the Feds derive. And then each state may actually create similar ones. And so a lot of the states have created specific values for uh, just for their state as well. And so those are meant to be general public. And they've been around, you know, EPA was created in 1970, and they started working on those in the 70s. But actually, going back to AIJ again, back in the late 60s, they actually created uh, community exposure limits for lead, ozone, aldehydes, a lot of the things we see today. Uh, AIJ actually had a committee that created those ambient air quality limits back in the late 60s and the early 70s. And let me, if you could kind of uh, clarify for me, there's the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, but that only, I mean, if I recall correctly, there's six or seven of those. And and is this additional um, limits, ambient air quality limits? How many are we looking at? How many have we actually got for the public? Yeah, so the National Ambient Air Quality Limits are really are only a, a half a dozen or so. Uh, you do have some secondary ones like copper and the like that they're made to, uh, made to protect against um, vegetation and uh, visibility issues and the, and the like. But the, for the federal ones by the EPA, they're very limited in how many there are. Now, there are other ambient air quality limits that are derived based off of the similar process that you use for uh, the EPA uses for cleanup for, for Superfund sites. And what's acceptable is a downwind population, or what's acceptable is a, a concentration in a residence. And those follow uh, standard what's called risk assessment guide, guidelines, RAGs, that the EPA has put out. Those same processes are used by, say, ASTM uh, and their guideline for chemical cleanup at a, at a contaminated site. They're also used by the same process is used by um, California CARB to create acceptable values for uh, their air their air and ambient situations. And those are also used by other states when they derive fence line values for chemicals coming off of, say, an industrial facility, what's allowed to be downstream at, at the fence line. Um, so there's a limit to the EPA's numbers, but there's really not a limit to a lot of the things that are out there in terms of those being derived for uh, general population scenarios. They all, they all tend to fall into the same process that EPA has used for risk assessment guidance, which would be creating an RFD and RFC and then creating an exposure scenario for that. Okay. And then, you know, we, we, you go over things like what is an eight-hour time-weighted average, what is a short-term exposure limit. I, I think we're good on that. And then, but then you talk about some non-occupational um, I guess these are like occupational exposure scenarios. Um, and, and I think that's what a lot of people are interested in here is, you know, what, what are the non-occupational exposure scenarios? How do, you, how do you use the occupational limits to help you better guide people on the non-occupational exposures? Okay, so knowing some of the non-occupational ones, which are typically you have some one-hour limits, um, and then you have some eight-hour, and then you have annual ones averaged over a year with certain perhaps number of exceedances, say once per year or a 99, 98% value to stay below for one-hour maximums. All those are meant to reduce um, morbidity, disease, um, <clears throat> impairment in individuals' ability to enjoy life, whether that's being able to breathe well or that's being able to um, not smell something they don't want to smell. And so 
those non-occupational ones have particular endpoints. And so if you're going to compare an occupational to a non-occupational, or you're trying to derive a non-occupational off of an occupational, you look, again, go back to the exposure scenario. What's the time period of exposure? What's the frequency? And what's the adverse effect? Um, because those will help you decide why the number is like it is. And so if I've got uh, you know, odor stuff in an occupational, in an occupational world, that's probably not going to be much adjustment to the non-occupational world because it's essentially driven by the nuisance effect of an odor. And there's not really, it's, it's very, it's acutely, the effect is acute. It turns up very quickly. It uh, already has covered a pretty broad range of people who can be sensitive to that particular odor. So that doesn't see much of a change. On the other hand, if I've got, you know, if I've got something like uh, increased uh, heart attacks over a lifetime, then I'm looking at a different population for non-occupational. I'm looking at different time periods. And so I have to adjust to account for longer exposure periods, uh, less recovery period, um, uh, more sensitive individuals. And so there are um, certain factors that you would use both directly to, to account for, again, 40 hours versus 168 hours. Perhaps there's an inner human variability that may be tenfold that I need to account for. Maybe I don't trust the rat data. And... Um, yeah, you know, does anybody trust a rat? Um, <laughs> it can be very devious, devious little uh, little buggers. Um, as a matter of fact, take a look at rat situation for an instance. You know, rats actually one of their mechanisms to avoid exposures they actually decrease the respiration rate. And hmm. so for certain things, they will actually slow down their breathing while they're while they're inhaling it. And so if you think about that, you're doing a test and now they're inhaling half of what you think they inhaled then they may not be getting the same dose that, that, that a human would. So you look at comparisons between animals and what were tested and the animal data you're using and what's a human and how do we relate those to And maybe I need a threefold uh, uncertainty or safety factor and maybe even tenfold to account for that. Those I would potentially use in a non-occupational setting to be conservative and protective, but I wouldn't necessarily use them in an occupational setting where I don't expect to have a two-year-old baby and I don't expect to have an 85-year-old man working with, with uh, heavy chemicals. Maybe this is a point where we can... Uh, there used to be like a rule of thumb. And I, I can't remember if it was from ACGIH or... Uh, I can't remember who, but it was like one-tenth of the occupational exposure limits was more... You know, was fairly protective in non-occupational exposure to the general public. But that has been... You know, uh, no, no longer they're no longer recommending that. They're no longer standing by that. I wonder if this is a point where you can maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so I've been around a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> My professional career started on Friday the thirteenth in nineteen eighty six. Quite, quite an ominous day. Yeah. Um, I saw the old. Uh, it was actually ASHRAE's indoor air quality standard that had that in the appendices. ASHRAE. That was it. Okay. Yeah, so if you go back to the old ASHRAE IEQ standard back in the day and you look at the appendices, there was kind of a rule of thumb that was thrown in there that you, if you didn't have an ambient air quality limit, a national ambient air quality limit, uh, NAQS, um, you could actually take a like a tenth of the TLV value or a hundredth of the TLV value, depending upon how, your approach, and just automatically use that as a, as a good value for indoor air quality. That The problem with that is it ignores the the way in which they're developed, and the different endpoints. And so that, that doesn't work. Now, there are some pretty good correlations on certain groupings of chemicals that, that you, could, you could do that because you're adding, you're adding say, a 3- to 30-fold safety factor 
for a more sensitive population or a more variable population. And so there are instances which that which it's worthwhile to do, and you could you can take a look at that. But you can't do that without actually looking at how the limit was developed in the first place. What's the key adverse effect that present they're preventing? And then how is that number derived? Where did it come from? And what was the process? So from, so from that standpoint, you, you can, if you know where the limit came from and you know the process, you can then apply some of the other modifications to come up with uh, an acceptable you know, ambient air value. If you go back and you look at each one of these ATSDR tox profiles that have derived uh, minimum uh, risk values, the, the MRLs, if you look at those, they go through step by step. What do they use as a study? What's the number? What are the factors that they take off of that to account for you know, 24 hours a day? Um, what do they do to account for uh, rat to human, um, maybe breathing rate differences or things like, you know, for formaldehyde, you know, a rat has a very nice big nose, but it takes water, it, has, it takes stuff in that's very water-soluble faster. So it's more sensitive to formaldehyde, it's more sensitive to glutaraldehyde. So you might actually bump the number up uh, for something like that as opposed to reducing it. You take those factors and, and if you look at the MRLs, they'll come down and show you how they got to their final number. And you can see all the factors that went into that process. You can do the same thing taking the occupational data and then coming down and doing the same derivation, knowing what some of those are. Um, you can also cheat and go to the REACH over in Europe and they have a formal uh, DNAL process, um, uh, essentially a, a default uh, exposure limit that you can go through a very formal systematic process on how to come up with an acceptable number. And those numbers tend to end up being more general population related as opposed to occupational, even though they were theoretically created for the occupational realm. Hmm. Tony, I wonder if you could maybe use an example for us. I, I wanted to pull one up that I think most everyone's familiar with. Formaldehyde has been a, uh, an interesting, uh, you know, it, situation, I guess, for people doing indoor environmental quality. And then you've got, you know, California had some proposed rates that, you know, were really not something that almost could be achieved. And I'm wondering if you could maybe use formaldehyde as an example, because we're, we're running a little low on time on, on how you would take maybe the occupational, um, exposure limits and, and how we, whether you or others have adjusted that using one of these types of, uh, you know, like mar margin of safety, one of these approaches and uh, how that works in the real world. All right. So let's, let's, let's hit from Alahide for a second and, and let's recognize that like uh, we have a OSHA PDL, which is based off of cancer. Uh, but we also have an HCGI TLV, which is lower. It's at basically, you know, a third of that. And that is based off of irritation and nuisance value, not based off of cancer. The cancer effect is much higher. And so the number that actually gets used by ACGIH is, is a nuisance value of irritation. And there really is no safety factor built into that whatsoever. Actually, the safety factor is negative. They accept that you were going to have uh, you know, 20% of the population exposed at that TLV to be annoyed by the odor, to be irritated by that exposure. And so even there, you're seeing 20%. So if you're looking at a non-occupational world, I'm probably going to be shooting for, you know, at least no more than 5% and maybe lower than that if I'm looking at a target value that I want to be exposed to. 
um, as my number. So I'm going to be taking a look at the data that was used to generate that acceptable value under the TLV and say, what do I really need to make sure that in the non-occupational realm, I'm not seeing irritation of individuals associated with that formaldehyde exposure. And so that may be six times lower. Um, and so recognizing that it's a reversible, it's an irritation effect. So it's, it's not something that's going to kill you. It's just going to annoy you. Uh, and it may make you very non-productive. And those are important factors in indoor air quality. Um, those are things that drive the ability of somebody to function in, in an indoor air quality setting. And so I would look at dropping those down as a preventive measure so that I know that I'm less likely to have that. And then if I do have somebody, I'm not going to lower the limit to somebody who's sensitized. I may control their workspace because it's cheaper to control their workspace, one person, than it is to try and limit everything for everybody else. There's a reasonable management way of, of looking at what do I create for the number to, to handle almost all people, and then what do I do for these few people who, who I can't manage in that fashion. I can manage them in a different way. And are, are you familiar with what California, the, the levels that California put out and wh- how they came up with those numbers and why they're, you know, lower than what is fine common, commonly in, you know, maybe half of houses? I, have, I haven't looked at that lately, um, but I would suspect, knowing what they do with glutaraldehyde, um, that they probably took uh, a, that type of dose and did safety factors off of that, assuming it's a long-term target organ thing, which is not the same. Um, the other way they could have done it is they could have looked at nasal lesions in the rats and not accounted for differences between humans and, and rats and said, there's, said there, there are things that make it so that we're more sensitive. And they, they have a tendency to do that out in California. Um, they also have a tendency to take the ultra-most sensitive, even if it's not a repeatable study, and use that as a basis. So methamphetamine, when they were looking at the cleanup level for methamphetamine on surfaces, they took a, a study of pregnant women uh, taking meth for weight reduction. That's, that's, that was the study that they used for their basis. Now, hmm. the dose-response relationship in that study was not very good. They saw an effect at the lowest dose. They didn't see an effect at the next dose. They started to see an effect at the next dose, highest dose, and then again at the next highest. And so you should see a monotonic increase, or at least an increase uh, that's, that's statistically good, as opposed to seeing you know, a certain value is actually better. Um, and so when you see that, you don't use a study like that. You're very cautious and use the upper end of the study instead of the lower end of the study. But uh, California tends to be very protective in the way they look at things. And so when they do that, they will take more safety factors and be much more conservative than other people would. And it all comes down to uh, how, do you, how do you want to manage your risk? Um, I'm, I'm somebody who likes to look at the overall risk. You know, if your chance of being struck by lightning over a 72-year lifespan is probably about 17 in a million. You know, do I want to regulate a chemical so that I have a one in a million risk when I'm already at risk of, of being struck by lightning or being taken out by a flood, which is even higher risk, you know, what do I want to use my money and my resources and my people to prevent? Um, and I, I take a better risk management approach as opposed to a hazard approach. And that, that's important to understand about these limits is you have to also look at the exposed population and what are you trying to, what are you trying to prevent and how can you do it? This is not the only way to, to manage risk. I think you kind of anticipated what I was going to ask, and that was kind of like, what's the key point behind the presentation? You know, And, and, and I thought you did a nice job of, summing it up there we didn't really get to go into about half of the 
presentation you're going to give at the IAQA conference. I hope you have more than an hour there, by the way, uh, because it's going to be tough to get all this in. But, uh, you know, maybe we can have people listen prior to going to what you uh, went over here today, and then they can, uh, you know, fill in, the, fill in the gaps when they get to the conference. Cliff, any final thoughts? Yeah, so- Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, so final thoughts for you. You look at what, what is the acceptable level of risk for your particular scenario, um, and then you look at the target endpoint. Does it make sense for what you're using it for? So it's always important to go look at where the number came from and look at where it should be applied. And if you look at the two of those and you, and you do your due diligence, you'll probably come out ahead in most cases. Cliff, any final thoughts, questions for Tony? Nope, I'm good. I tell you, this was fascinating, and it helped me, uh, you know, put some, uh, fill in some gaps uh, with respect to how this is done, Tony, and, and not just on the general public side, but the occupational side. I thought you did a nice job of going through that and explaining that. The presentation is very nice. I, I urge folks that are at the conference to go ahead and um, get into Tony's presentation at IAQA. It's a couple weeks. It's coming up pretty quick, actually. I think the 22nd through the 24th. Do you know what day you're speaking, Tony? Yeah, I'll be speaking at 2.30 in the afternoon on Monday the 22nd. Oh, that's a good time. That's a good time. You know, you're not at 3 o'clock on Wednesday, so that's a good that's a good sign. <laughs> anyway, I want to uh, thank you first for joining us, for stopping by the studio. I knew sooner or later you'd be back in the Pittsburgh area and we could get you in and uh, have you have you talk to listeners. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us here today on IAQ Radio. I also want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, for helping out here and uh, being a great host for Tony in the studio back in McKee's Rocks uh, at the controls. John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, a real nice group on today. I'm already getting some emails in, and I look forward to – by the way, next week we're going to do a flashback. Um, I will be out at the uh, Sloan Conference down in uh, Florida next week, so I think we're going to do a flashback, but if not, Cliff and I will will put our heads together and figure out what to do there. And in two weeks from now, I'll be back from the IAQA conference, and we'll be doing a little overview of some of the great presenters and topics that um, I was able to watch at the IAQA conference. So come back next Friday at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.